morning, Sovereign Grace, most of Sovereign Grace. Seems a lot of people are sick this morning, and I'm glad you are healthy and you are here. Thankful that you have come and we get to worship together. Where we will be, God's Word, of course, we are in Genesis 29. You can begin to turn there already. Genesis 29, as we continue to make our way through this incredible book and see once more the next events in the life of Jacob, this patriarch that in so many ways is so different than us, but in the most fundamental ways, just like us. And we will see a big part of his story today. We are going to read verses 1 through 30. I know it's a long passage, but hang in there. It's better to see it all in context, and then we'll walk through piece by piece as we go through. So Genesis 29, verses 1 through 30. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, before we read this, this is the word of our living God. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. And they said, we cannot until the, all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Laban says, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the weak of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And served Laban for another seven years. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you, for your word. Lord, because we know it's breathed out by you. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God, all your people, Lord, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, Lord, as we gather in your presence today around your holy and infallible word, Lord, we ask that you would graciously keep this promise among us. That you would make us complete. You would equip the saints to do your will, to honor you, so that we might be conformed to the image of God of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of your holy name. Amen. One of the strange things I've noticed in the recent years is that a lot of people talk about karma today. Growing up, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about karma or mention it at all, but now I feel like everywhere I look, I see people mentioning karma. I turn on the TV and celebrities And athletes are talking about how karma is responsible for their wins and their success in life. Musicians write songs about karma. Taylor Swift has a song where she says, karma is my boyfriend, in case you're not aware. And you could spend literally weeks, maybe probably even months of your life on YouTube watching instant karma videos. You know what I'm talking about, right? Have you ever been sucked into those and watched those forever? It's easy to do. Now, for those of you that don't know what karma is or haven't heard of this, it's the idea from Eastern religions that has to do a little bit with a reincarnation. But really, the idea is that there's this ultimate sense of justice. You do really good things, then good things come back. If you do really bad things, then bad things will come back, mostly in your next life. That may sound a little bit like biblical justice, but with karma, the big difference is there's no God bringing that justice. 
There's no personal force in the universe at all. It's almost as if justice itself is God. And the universe is just structured where eventually everyone gets what they deserve. Now, you have to admit, there's part of us that loves that idea. It's the reason why I think Instant Karma videos are so popular. I actually almost stood up and cheered this week when I saw one of these videos of a young man trying to break into a car, throwing a rock at a car window, and it bounced off the window and hit him in the head and knocked him down. I thought to myself, I'm like, yes, that's the way it should be. Instant justice, right? There's something in us that loves that. But my fear is that when people read this text about Jacob, that's the way we want to respond. That the world would say, ah, yes, instant karma. The deceiver has been deceived. He gets what he deserves in beautiful, poetic justice. Of course, the church doesn't want to use that karma idea. So we say, ah, yes, there it is, justice, the justice of the Lord. See, your sins will find you out. You reap what you sow, so don't mess with God. That's usually how we'll we'll respond to this. And now there's some truth to that statement, but I need you to understand that's not the point of this story. Genesis 29 is definitely not about karma. And it's not even primarily about retributive justice. This story about Jacob and Laban is about the sovereign grace and goodness of God. It's about God fulfilling his promises to Jacob and even disciplining his son. Because remember, last chapter in Genesis 28, we saw those promises. God told Jacob, I will be with you. I will keep you no matter where you go. And God doesn't follow that up in this chapter and say, well, yeah, that's true. I will keep those promises. I will bless you. But first, I need to judge you. First comes justice, a slap on the hand, and then the blessing will follow. No, God's blessing in this passage is his corrective justice, which a better way to describe that is the gracious discipline of God. That's what we see here. It's God's sovereign grace to expose Jacob's sin and to grow him in holiness even through this terrible situation. So I hope and pray this morning as we study this text that just puts God's sovereign grace on display that we would worship God and realize that God is gracious to us in the way that he provides for us and even in the way he disciplines us. Those really are the two points I want to bring out today. So just to make that really clear, the first point is Jacob's blindness to God's blessing. God provides for Jacob, and he's just oblivious. He completely misses it in verses 1 through 21. And then secondly, God's discipline through Laban's deception in verses 22 to the end. So first, let's look at Jacob's blindness to God's blessing here. Now you see in verses 1 through 6, we have the setting. We find here that after Jacob has seen this life-altering vision of God in this dream at Bethel, this glorious vision of a ladder coming down from the sky and God blessing him. God renews his spirit. He has a spring in his step, and he actually miraculously makes it to where he needs to be. He makes it to Haran, and he comes to this well, and he meets these shepherds, and the action really begins in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Jacob said to them, the shepherds, My brothers... 
Where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. By a miracle, Jacob makes it 500 miles to this destination. And lo and behold, his wife, his future wife, just walks right up. Now, if anybody's thinking, well, wait a minute, I've heard this story before. Because you have. Genesis 24, a man comes to the well looking for his wife from a far off land. And she just kind of walks in right there, right from the beginning. That's the story of Abraham's servant. In Genesis 24, remember he also came from the east to look for a wife for Isaac, Jacob's father. And by God's sovereign grace, he was led to a well, probably the same well here. Seems to be the family well, but maybe not. And he found Rebekah and brought her all the way back to Isaac. And that is now Jacob's mother. And now we have Jacob returning maybe to the same place. And Moses, you'll see as we go through this, is deliberately using the same language and a lot of the same images all the way through this story so that we can connect the dots between these two stories. Mostly so that we can compare the actions of Jacob, this future patriarch, to Abraham's servant in Genesis 24. You remember Abraham's servant, don't you? Do you remember what he did when he got to the well? First thing he did was pray. First thing. Here, turn back a couple pages. Genesis 24. Let's read his prayer. Genesis 24, so you can hear what he says, and we can compare it then to Jacob. Genesis 24, verse 12. This is the servant's words. When he comes to that well, verse 12. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, that's the well, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please, let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. You see this man's great faith? He trusts in the Lord. He's trusting in the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to be faithful to his master and be faithful to his servant. He actually prays for help, for direction, and he actually expects God to provide what he needs. God does. You remember that the woman he's praying for walks up right when he's praying. Before he's even done with the prayer, Rebecca walks right up. And first he notices her beauty, but then he also notices her character. Kind of even tests that character by asking her to get water. And you remember, when he finds out what family she's from, he prays first, but what does he do in response? He worships God. Look at verse 26. In chapter 24 as well, 26, the servant says this. The man, that's the servant, bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's 
kinsman. This is a faithful brother, godly man, a mature believer. His life is marked by humility and prayer and patience and trust, even praising God in gratitude when God supplies what he needs. What about Jacob? Turn back to chapter 29. What about Jacob? How does Jacob compare to this servant? Let's see what he does when he meets his future wife, Rachel, in verse 7 of chapter 29. He, Jacob, said, behold, speaking to the shepherds here, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep. Go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. What a strange scene. And you have to admit, this foreigner, Jacob, comes in, out of town, comes to the shepherd's well with no sheep. Already weird. And then he comes and what does he do? He just starts bossing people around. Starts barking off three orders in a row. Water, go, pasture them. Even telling these shepherds how to do their job. Breaking all the customs. We don't roll the stone away until everybody's gathered. So we need to wait. Jacob doesn't wait. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. For she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, and that's the most important part here. The daughter of Laban, his mother's brother. And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now what is going on here? What in the world is happening in this scene? There's so much speculation, it's kind of ridiculous. Some people think, well, this is just Jacob being Jacob. Right? He's bold. He's brass. He's, he loves to take charge. He grasps for authority that isn't his own. So he's just taking charge in this moment. Now, some really want to look at this in a good light, and they say, well, this is a supernatural act of strength. This stone we find out in verse 2 of the chapter is large. Maybe it took a bunch of shepherds to lift, and this is Jacob lifting the stone by himself. So maybe God is with Jacob in that sense and giving him like Samson-like strength to move this stone out of the way to water these sheep. And maybe, maybe, I don't see that in the text, clearly. My best guess, because of what I know about myself and human nature, I just think Jacob is showing off. I do. Whether this is supernatural strength or just raging hormones in Jacob, I just think this is Jacob flexing his muscles and saying, you know what, this is showtime. This is the point where I get to show Rachel what kind of man I am. Stand back, shepherds, right? Stand back and make sure she's watching, and I'll show you what I can do. Kids, you can think of Gaston probably a fair description of what Jacob was like in this moment, flexing his muscles, trying to impress Bell. I think that's what's going on here. Now, the best case scenario, he's trying to prove he's husband material. He's a strong leader. He's a take charge kind of guy. And he's even a good provider for potentially his future wife. Well, definitely is not the first time a guy showed off to get a girl. And it won't be the last. But no matter what this is, We can't read into his heart and motives in every way, but do you see here the massive contrast between Jacob and Abraham's servant? Massive contrast. 
God blesses both of these men in miraculous ways, by the way, bringing them hundreds of miles right to the right place, and then magically almost, it seems like, really miraculously, providing the woman they were looking for. And Abraham's servant responds with prayer and praise, making God's name great. Jacob responds with impatience, pride. He doesn't acknowledge God once. All it seems he cares about is to make his name great. That's so sad to me because Jacob is just coming away from Bethel. He completely missed the point of what Bethel was about. Jacob, it's not about doing these things by your own strength. Working your way up to heaven like the Tower of Babel. That's not what it's about. No, God came down to you, Jacob, and blessed you, gave you these promises, and he's going to accomplish this. It's all about his glory, Jacob, not yours. Jacob has to learn the lesson the hard way. And here's the man to teach him that hard lesson. Let's see what happens when he meets Laban. His match, really, in deception here. So we see that in verses 11 through 14. Laban actually greets Jacob and hears his story. And I'm sure, we don't have this in the text, but it seems to be he probably left out conveniently the part about his deception back home. But Laban does know something weird happened. Because for some reason, the younger brother, Jacob, was given the blessing that the older brother, Esau, should have had. And that was just enough information to get this con artist started on a plan. And it starts to take shape in verse 15. In verse 15. And Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, there should be red flags all over this for Jacob. He just got out of a terrible sibling rivalry that almost cost him his life. And now he's going to jump right back in? He should run for the hills at this moment. Look at verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. This is such an interesting way to describe Leah. Clearly, it's an idiom. In this part of the world, even today, eyes are very important. When everything else is covered over, that's really what you see, and that's kind of how you judge a person. And some of the commentaries are kind of funny here because they say, well, this is talking about weak eyesight. So it should say, Leah's eyes were weak. And then it should say, but Rachel could see really, really far. It's not what it says. It's not what this is about at all. It says, no, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful. So it's a comment not on her eyesight, but her appearance. Now maybe she did have some kind of physical deformity. I don't know, crossed eyes, bulging, whatever it was. Something might have been going on there. But the bottom line, the point is clear. Rachel was beautiful and Leah was not. And that is Laban's problem. That's his issue that he's trying to solve. How can he get his older daughter Leah married off if all the guys that keep coming around are only interested in Rachel? And so Jacob presents him with an offer here in verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. This is an insane offer, by the way. Shows you how head over heels 
Jacob is with Rachel. Look, a normal dowry price at this time in the world is about 30 to 40 shekels, which amounts to maybe two, three years of labor. Jacob offers seven years, more than double what a normal dowry price would bring. He is desperate for Rachel. And he just let Laban know it. And Laban is going to take advantage of his future son-in-law. Look at verse 19. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. (laughs) You see how political of an answer that was, right? Laban didn't say, yes, deal. That is far better than any offer I'm going to get elsewhere in the sense that that's twice as what I thought it would be. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, it's better than nothing. Well, it sounds like a decent option, so just stay a while. This snake is covering his tracks. He's leaving it open-ended so no one can accuse him of fraudulent behavior later. And Jacob totally misses it. He's infatuated with Rachel. And that becomes really clear in verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. That sounds like a horrible, crude statement from Jacob, like he's completely lost perspective, and that's because he has. Jacob may have loved Rachel, but his patience is gone after seven years. He now is consumed with lust, living by his passions. All he wants to do here is sleep with Rachel. He says, give me my wife. You know who he sounds like? Esau. Sounds like his brother Esau in Genesis 25. You remember Esau coming back, starving from his trip, and he comes into the tent, and Jacob's making food. He said, give me some of that red stuff. Just give it to me. I don't care about the birthright. Take whatever you want. Just give me some of that stew. That's what Jacob's doing now. He's living by his passions. He's forgotten about the birthright, the blessing of God, and he's missing it here. Unlike Abraham's servant, who saw Rebekah's beauty, but also saw her character, Jacob is only interested in Rachel's body. And he completely misses the grace of God. God is fulfilling tremendous promises here, giving him a wife from the right family so that Jacob could have children, have God the offspring, and fulfill the Abrahamic promises, but he's missing it. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy to lose perspective like this, isn't it? To be blind to the way that God provides and blesses us all the time. Jacob's life is filled with pride and living for his lusts and his passions when it should have been filled with prayer and praise because God is faithful. And we think, well, he saw the Lord. He saw what happened at Bethel. He heard the promises. He saw the ladder come down. Haven't we seen even more? We've seen the true ladder, Jesus Christ, who has come down from heaven to live the life that we failed to live. Go to the cross and pay for our sins, taking the wrath of God upon himself, dying and raising from the dead to conquer sin and death, and he promises to be with us and to keep us just like he did for Jacob. And you know what? Every second he keeps that promise. 
He provides for us. Physically, spiritually, and even through the difficult times, he's sanctifying us. It's so easy to forget all that God has done and get focused and fixated on our lusts and passions and maybe even creating a name for ourselves. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have seen so much more glorious things than Jacob. We should be praising God for all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Praying that God would help us and lead us so that we would make much of him and not of ourselves. Well, God's definitely not done with us. He's not done with Jacob either in this passage. Jacob was blind to God's blessing. He missed God's sovereign provision, but he won't miss God's discipline. Let's see God's discipline through Laban's deception in verse 22. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought or gave her to Jacob. I hope that sounds familiar. We've heard this language in Genesis before, haven't we? Every time it's bad news. In the garden, Genesis 3, Eve took the fruit, and gave it to her husband, Adam. Genesis 16.3, Sarah took Hagar and gave her to her husband, Abraham. And now Laban leads his people into sin again by taking Leah and giving her to Jacob. And 23 at the end says, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpha, to his daughter, Leah, to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, It was Leah. What a rude awakening that was. Terrible moment. Now, I'm sure you're probably thinking, because I was thinking, how in the world is this even possible? How could you pull something like this off? Surely he would have known somewhere at night and somewhere he would have figured this out. But no, most likely he's probably drinking heavily. This is a long wedding. They don't last for an hour or two like they do for us. They're weeks sometimes. So he probably was drunk. They had a thick veil for the wife. And remember, no electricity, so it's pretty dark in the tent there. So you see how all of these circumstances could have enabled Laban to pull off the switch. But what blows me away is Leah. Leah must have been a willing participant in this deception. Maybe even Rachel. Somehow Laban convinced this family that this is for their good, this terrible deception. And it's shocking when a father should be blessing his children on one of the happiest days of their lives. He's ruining both of their lives. Exact opposite of what a father should be doing. Now look at Jacob. He figures it out. He's angry obviously. And we see God's discipline revealed to Jacob. Look at verse 25. Right in the middle of verse 25. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? I can imagine those words are like poison coming out of Jacob's mouth. He's enraged, he's anger, obviously, but I would imagine those words, he confronted himself, didn't he? Have you ever had this experience, by the way, as a parent? Had this experience where you're kind of rebuking your children, you're correcting your children, and you find out in the middle of that rebuke, you're rebuking them for something they learned from you? 
terrible experience. I've stopped like mid-sentence when this has happened before. Why are you so impatient? Why do you talk to your brother that way? Oh, because I talk to him that way. It's a terrible experience. That's what's happening with Jacob right now. I hope, I pray that the words of Esau came to his mind. You remember Genesis 27, verse 35. After he deceived his father and his brother, Isaac said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing, Esau. And you remember what Esau said? Is he not rightly named Jacob? The deceiver, the heel grabber, the liar, the con artist, always trying to grasp for things that aren't his. And now he calls out Laban for deception. The deceiver has been deceived. They have to think, well, how in the world is Laban going to justify this? What could he possibly say to think he's going to get away with this kind of deception? Jacob should run. Jacob should fight. Jacob should do something. But Laban shuts his mouth so fast with this statement. Look at verse 26. Laban said, it is not so done in our country, what? To give the younger before the firstborn. Literally in Hebrew, it's like to put the younger first. They've been saying, I know back home, you, the younger brother, got the blessing over your brother Esau. That's not how we do things around here. It's not how they do things back home either. But Jacob knows it. And what did he have to do to get that blessing? Exactly what Laban had to do. Deceive. You see what God is doing here to Jacob through Laban? When Jacob looks at Laban in this moment, it's like looking at a mirror. God is exposing his sinfulness, Jacob's sinfulness through Laban's deception to the point that it kills any kind of objection that Jacob might bring. Think about it. One of the commentators said this, and I love it. He said, Jacob could have went to Laban and said, Laban, you've deceived me. I reached out in the dark thinking I was touching someone I wasn't. And Laban could have said, well, your father Isaac reached out in the dark and touched Esau when he thought, when he really was touching you. He could have turned to Leah and said, look, I called out Rachel in the dark and you said, here I am. You deceived me. And Leah could have easily said, well, your father called out Esau and you said, here I am. No matter what Jacob says in response, it just shines a brighter spotlight on his own sin and shows what a deceiver he has been. So his mouth is shut, silence. And in that silence, Laban swoops in for the kill. It's pretty impressive, actually. Verse 27, Laban says, complete the week of this one, Leah, the wedding week, and we will give you the other also. That's Rachel. In return for serving me another seven years. It was already too much the first time. Now he's going to double it. And what he doesn't know here is he actually won't get away from Laban for 13 more years. Verse 28. Jacob did so. And completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. 
You remember, that's how it started with Jacob and Esau, wasn't it? And served Laban for another seven years. Now, I don't know what's wrong with me. I've read this story, I don't even know, countless times. And I missed a detail every single time until this week. I thought that he worked seven years, he got Leah. He worked seven more years, and then he married Rachel at the end of 14 years. That's what I thought. But no, here, within one week, he gets two wives. Then he has to follow that up with seven more years of labor. Just, it made me think, maybe I'm getting older now, but maybe Laban only wanted to pay for one wedding. Maybe that was his goal this whole time. He marries off both daughters to this rich guy and has basically a slave for 20 years. Do you see how deceptive and cunning this man is? Now I think most of us can get to this point and think, where in the world is God? He's not even mentioned here. But surely God's promises have failed. Surely his plans have just all fallen apart. He's not with Jacob. Look at the mess that Jacob ended up in for the rest of his life. No way this is God's plan. Or some might say, well, yeah, it's God's plan. But it's God's plan to curse Jacob, to judge Jacob, to give him what he deserves. And both of those miss the point. Yes, God was bringing Jacob to Haran to get a wife and to have kids and godly offspring, but that wasn't the only thing God was doing. God is also using the troubles and the hardship in Jacob's life to transform him, to sanctify him, to turn him into a holy nation, a holy priesthood, as he would later tell the people with Moses which includes the painful process of exposing sin and leading him to repentance so that he can cling to Christ. Don't miss what's going on here. God loved Jacob so much he wouldn't leave him in his sin, wouldn't leave him in his blindness to his own depravity. And how do we know that? Because Hebrews 12.5 tells us, Listen to what this passage says about discipline. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. Jacob knows a thing about that right now. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. That's who Jacob is. He's his son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen to this. Here's the point of all of it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Which Jacob would say, amen. So would you. So would I. But... Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. See, this is what God was doing to Jacob. He was graciously disciplining Jacob. He was treating him as a son. This is the sovereign grace of God, showing him through painful providence that he is a sinner in need of a savior, and his only hope is not to flex his muscles and do what he can to figure things out himself. His only hope is to cling to the promises he was just given at Bethel. The promises that says, a son will come from you, Jacob, to save the world, to bless the world, 
Your hope is the offspring of Abraham. And he will save you from this deception, this sin that I just exposed in your life. Now, did Jacob repent? Did Jacob cling to the Lord at this moment? Well, the text doesn't tell us for sure. I like to think he did because he served Laban for seven more years. And brass bold Jacob didn't fight back, didn't run that we know of. But he had 20 years to dwell on the sin that he committed against his family. And listen to this. At the end of Jacob's life, he was able to look back on his whole life, including this experience with Laban, and say this in Genesis 48. He says, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. I bet most of us think that David was the one who first said, God is my shepherd. It was Jacob. God has shepherded me through this whole time. It's his sovereign grace from the beginning, providing every step of the way and even disciplining me, disciplining me, showing me he loves me. But what about you? What about us? Do we despise the discipline of the Lord? Do we assume that when God promises to be with us and to keep us, that means he'll bring us around trouble, to bring us around the valley of the shadow of death rather than leading us through it for our good? Do we, brothers and sisters, see God's sovereign grace and sovereign goodness in the hardships, in the sufferings of life, trusting that it was God who providentially brought this terrible situation into our lives? to expose our sin, to show us our need for him, to show us what an incredible provider and father he is, and to show us what an incredible savior Jesus is. Because anything that God exposes in our heart through the process of discipline, if we are in Christ, it is paid in full. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then everything, please hear me, everything, that happens in your life is from the gracious hand of God. Both blessing and discipline is for our good and for God's glory. So we need to rejoice in times of blessing and plenty and in times of hardship because we know the Lord is at work. And we will sing this in a moment which reminds us of that. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. That is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to see your gracious provision and discipline in our lives. Help us, Lord, to see these gifts that you have given us and turn around and praise you for your grace. And, Lord, that pray that we wouldn't be stubborn, that we wouldn't be foolish. And when we are, Lord, you would expose that so we can repent and trust you. And know, Lord, the whole time, everything that happens in our life from this day on into eternity, we know you are our good and faithful shepherd. You are with us. And you keep us from this day forth and forevermore. Father, help us to find great peace and comfort in that, even in the worst times, because we know you are for us in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.